Harlem, the Canucks are 5-2-1 and one in their last eight games. We've got a little two-game winning streak here. Um, this team's actually been playing better hockey. Take away the last, like, 10 minutes of that third period. Score effects had a little bit to do with it against Nashville, but a 4-3 shootout win. And if you're a tankist, you're not liking it. If you're a process guy, how do you feel about what you're seeing around this Canuck team right now the last eight games? Yeah, I'd say the Nashville game wasn't their best performance per se, but overall, they've been taking legitimate steps here under Rick Tockett. And so there were a couple of takeaways. For starters, let, let's address the sort of tank thing, right? Because I've clearly said that I'm on team tank, rooting for losses, trying to get the highest draft pick possible. And while I understand it, I'm also at the point now where I've accepted that this isn't quite going to be the tank that uh, we were sort of maybe holding out hope for that given the soft schedule, given the new coach bump that, and with Demko returning, that they are going to go on a bit of a run here. But also I'm looking at some of these games. It's hard to be disappointed with performances where you see like Archer Seelovs comes in and he's fulfilling his NHL dream playing incredible hockey. You have Elias Pettersson continue, continuing to perform at a superstar level. Quinn Hughes is setting NHL records against the Leafs the other night for the fastest defenseman to uh, 200 assists. You have Vasily Podkolzin and Vitaly Kravtsov showing legitimate strides in their development. You're seeing the, the coaching staff show more trust in them, give them more opportunities. It's like you go up and down the lineup, you're seeing JT Miller, the egregious mistakes that he used to make earlier in the season are completely gone and he's playing some of the best hockey of his career. I, I, it, Yes, it sucks for the tank, but on the other hand, it's fun, entertaining hockey. And when you see, especially some of these younger players sort of developing, building confidence, getting more experience, it's hard to knock on it, and you might you may as well enjoy it at this point, right? I think it it'd be a bit of a miserable existence to just after every fun win, just be like, oh, but the tank, right? Yeah, well, no, you're right. And for me, I think the the hardest, sorry, not the hardest, the easiest part about all of it is that there's really not a lot to criticize. And and I say that because this isn't a a heavily veteran lineup where guys are playing through injuries and doing all of this. Um, you know, you got a coach that is completely dealing with a zero-pressure situation. Um, you know, like who else would you bring up? Okay, maybe you bring up Jack Rathbone. Maybe you bring up um, Nils Hoaglander at some point here to see what they can do. And, and there's still like 19 games to do that. Maybe we see Delina Klimovich get a game or, or, you know, whatever. Like there might be the odd one or two things here. You know, the, the only thing I wish there was more of, but it's not really feasible because those players don't exist is, you know, I asked talking yesterday about the three American League hockey, American Hockey League defensemen he's got. Well, who else are you going to bring up, right? Like maybe you can bring up Rathbone, who did get a bit of run earlier in the year, right? I was critical when he wasn't playing, but ultimately he did play. I'd probably like to see him in this new structured environment as opposed to trying to cut his teeth on what was a completely unstructured team previously. Um so there might be some benefit to that, right? If the club wants to actually use that player as a as an asset or as a chip, try to rebuild a bit of his value, right? Because it, it's certainly low, but th that's minimal, right? And even earlier, we were kind of criticizing Talkit um, for, or at least questioning Talkit for the amount of ice time that Pedersen was getting, that Miller and Hughes were getting. And, and I know that some of it was because of this defense, but 
Now, all of a sudden, in this last game, we saw Podkolzin and Kravtsov play in the final three minutes, and we saw both guys play in overtime. Absolutely. Right? So, so what is there to criticize? Because the, the roster options to tank or not to tank are so limited, you know, from a credible standpoint, right? Like you can't bring like just a ton of these guys up because so many of them are just insurance policies anyway, right? Like which is the player you desperately need to see more of? You know, Dries is an older guy. Um, Phil Giuseppe is an older guy, right? Some of these guys, like it's, it's not like you need to get young prospects to cut their teeth in large numbers. Those players just don't exist in this organization for the most part. So I think what they're doing is reasonable. It's hard to be overly critical of how the front office is managing the roster, right? So really what we're dealing with is just in-game decisions, which you can't help players for wanting to be competitive and wanting to win. We always said that if this was going to be a tank, it's got to be everybody around the, the, um, the team, not the people within the team. So I'm having a hard time being overly critical and you just kind of watch it. If there's development, fine. Yeah. And the other positive that I forgot to even mention was, and it obviously wasn't the game against Nashville because of Seelovs, but in the performances before that, seeing Thatcher Demko get back to playing his A game, like who can hate that, right? Like who can hate Completely. seeing him get back to his elite sort of level, which the club is going to need going into uh, next season, right? It's honestly, you're seeing the growth of in Demko, a young man who's gone through the the, the first big big adversity in his NHL career where under the the weight of of the five million dollar contract the level of expectations after the excellent season he had last year to go through that brutal first half of this season then go through the injury I'm sure that was a, a huge mental battle right and to be able to sort of bounce back right so it's like you've got all these positive storylines around the team and against Nashville as well, as you alluded to, the younger players got more minutes when you speak about that Pod Coles and Kraftsoft line. That's what I want to see. And ultimately, it was a fun game. The other sort of big takeaway from that Nashville performance for me was realizing and really being able to digest the fact that Elias Pettersson has reached a level where even on an off night, even when he's not playing close to his A game, he can still be the most impactful player on either team, right? Like you look at his five on fives performance through regulation, his line was off, right? The shots were nine to five in favor of Nashville when he, when he was in, on the ice. It felt like him and Kuzmenko were just like one pass or one move away where they might make one cool play in the neutral zone, but they're trying to trying to get through a defender who knocks puck off their stick or there were a lot of neutral zone and, and offensive zone turnovers. They were even scored on defensively. Talkett after the game said that, yeah, I mean, Pedersen and Kuzmenko really weren't on top of their game. He didn't like how that line played. And yet you, and yet you step back from that game and go, Pedersen in the first period had that incredible goal where just picked a spot top corner, nearly ended the game in overtime with that backhander that Saros got a piece of and then went off the crossbar of the post. And then he's, and then he scores a shootout winner, right? Like that to me is incredible for a star player to reach a level where the coach and, and, and everyone watching is going, that wasn't really close to the dominant A-level performance we're used to seeing. And yet he's the most impactful player on either team. Like that's, that's really special to see. 
Yeah, I mean, that shot was ridiculous, right? I mean, and we've seen a lot of it, you know, and, and I like the move on the shootout goal because I asked him about it after that, you know, it feels like he's been making a few more of those plays where he's in tight, showing great hands, subtle hands, and able to open up goaltenders and get and go five hole on some plays. And, you know, I think that's a result of his shot, right, or a byproduct of his shot. But, um, yeah, I mean, like, I, I think he was the only one that knew it went in in that moment. It was in and out so quickly. Uh, but just a laser beam shot and the confidence with which he takes it. And, and to your point, right? Like it wasn't great, right? Because uh, Kuzmenkov got um, uh, got sat, right? Uh, Kuznetsov, I should say, got sat for um, a couple of shifts there in the second period. Uh, which fine, again, you're sounding speaks, like Dollywell there. <laughs> I know. Let's put that away. Uh, Kuzmenko was uh, was sat for the second period a little bit, and that. Uh, was a good thing, right? Now, it's funny. The question was asked, would you ever sit Elias Pettersson? Would you ever sit him down? We've seen Miller get his ice time pulled back a little bit in specific moments. We've seen it with Kuzmenko a couple of times now. Um, I, I, I should I should not make – I should make sure I don't ask him. Remember the last time when I when he was being sat for a few games? Not sat, but just his ice time was being reduced. He was played lower in the lineup for a few games under Tockett. And then he all of a sudden in one game got more ice time and was a little more productive. And I asked him after the game if he felt like he was re-earning the coach's confidence or, or trust. And he thought I was asking him if he trusted the coach and was almost offended by the question because just because of the language barrier. But as far as Pedersen is concerned, do you think there would ever be a case where he would lose ice time? Not based, not based off how he's playing this season, right? Like even in a game like that where I go, he was a little bit off. It still, it still wasn't a case where he was any anywhere near being a being a liability, right? And you kept, and and here's the thing, right? You kept his ice time up, and eventually he he ended up being the game breaker. He need, he ended up being the difference maker, right? It's a little bit different with Kuzmenko where he plays an even riskier style. Sometimes you can't trust him defensively, but with Pedersen, he's your go-to guy, right? So no, uh, it wouldn't, it wouldn't even cross my mind the way that the way that he's playing because guys are going to have ebbs and flows, right? Connor McDavid isn't on every night, right? So uh, Austin Matthews, Nathan McKinnon, these guys aren't on every night. So to me, I, I thought Tockett handled it uh, really well. And, and even with Kuzmenko too, Yes, that probably wasn't his best performance, but watching him play and how close he was to converting on a few, converting on a few chances, it just really reinforced how over the last, I mean, I don't know the best time frame to describe it, whether it's a month, two months or so, he's really evolved into such a dynamic puck carrier, right? Because earlier in, in the season, it felt like a lot of his production was obviously near near the near the crease right it was his line mate Pedersen at the time was creating so much with the puck on a stick and Kuzmenko was sort of figuring out how to be the complementary piece and feed off of the space that Pedersen was creating as opposed to now where Kuzmenko can still excel in that role but it feels like he's he's taking a next step in terms of being a driver himself where he has so much confidence and swagger when he when he's carrying the puck. Every time it's on his stick, you don't know what to expect, right? He's so sneaky and creative. It's like a mystery box. And yeah, it didn't work out against Nashville. I have no problem with Tockett sitting him out for you know two or three shifts and then and then putting him back out there. But overall, the it, it's just 
he's such an electric player and, 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 and seeing him with Pedersen play, it makes these games so entertaining to watch. Yeah, it really does. And, and you're right. I mean, the one thing with Pedersen, because remember last year, right? Uh, you know, the first half of last season, his ice time was coming down and it, it needed to, right? He just wasn't playing well enough. Uh, wasn't playing confident enough. His game was being impacted at both ends of the ice. And there were games where we saw him below 15 minutes, and that was the right decision at that time. But he is at such a level right now. And even if he doesn't impact the game offensively, he still impacts the game defensively. And just his presence on the ice is impacting the opponent. And that matters, right? So I I don't envision a scenario where all of a sudden he's slumping for a few games and he's going to cheat the game. And as a result, you'd be motivated to play him less to send a message to motivate him. I just don't see that happening. Even if he's not feeling it offensively, he's still going to impact the game at both ends of the ice. So, or or at least on the defensive side of the ice. And, and, you know, and also on top of that, the Canucks just have no options at center where they could even contemplate doing that at this stage, uh, just because of who the other options are. But, um, Certainly love what I'm seeing from him, uh, even on an off night or an average night, as it were. Let's talk a bit about JT Miller and JT Miller under Rick Tockett. These last 15 games, yes, there's still been a few turnovers here and there and puck management issues. I think one of the things for him is that they just don't wind up in the back of the net. We've seen certain plays that, you know, in, in any time in the last two years were absolutely going to end up with a goal for the other team. So certainly he's buoyed by Thatcher Demko's return, but really even more than that, I mean, I think under Tockett, there's been a progression in his game. And I think we are seeing like, am I still convinced he's a full-time center? Not sure. I'm not there yet, but in terms of his overall impact and reason to critique and reason to potentially trade, like I'm, I'm just not feeling it right now. I think that uh, he's playing as well as we've seen in some time. Yeah, we've got to give him his uh, credit and due. It's the best that he's played all season. Since Tockett has taken over 15 points in his last 16 games, despite shooting only 5.7%, right? So he's not getting a lot of bounces. You look at his underlying two-way profile over the over that stretch, he's had he's controlled over 53% share of five and five shot attempts, which is number three among Canucks forwards. Right, that's always been the concern around Miller is the two-way side of it when he's playing center. He's excelling there right now. Also, just over fifty percent share of scoring chances. He's also been unlucky, right? I mentioned his individual shooting percentage, but even in general, his line mates—they're finishing just five percent of his shots, which means that he's probably due in that stretch anyway to have had more assists, to have had more points even, and defensively. His the his on ice save percentage is still below 900, which means that he's not getting as many saves as, he, as he's probably due for as well. You even look at the performance against against Nashville the, the other night; it's a perfect example where I walked away from that, and there were at least two or three really dangerous scoring chances that he set up in the slot, or whether it was a crossing pass to Besser from a sharp angle, probably could have earned an assist or two there. So. I think he's been playing really well. And for me, the biggest difference is, yeah, occasionally you may see a a D-zone giveaway here or there. But for me, he's cut out the really egregious ones where he's holding onto the puck too long. He's He's cut down the offensive zone turnovers, especially on entries where he's tried to make that home run east-west pass that gets picked off and results in an odd man rush against 
but his work rate is so high right now. You watch him, how he's battling defensively, right? Like he's consistently trying to hound the opposition center. He's battling his ass off defending the front of the net. He's coming deep to support the puck on the breakout. He's making a legit effort to play 200, um, to play a 200 foot game, to do anything possible to try and elevate his line. Even last night, he beat the wheels off of, uh, I forget who, who even fought. Uh, was it Cole Smith maybe? But Yeah, it was Smith. Yeah, I mean, e- even in a situation like that, like that was electric, right? So I think in all facets of the game, you're just seeing him give everything he has, which I think is one of the one of the biggest things we just wanted to see, right? Because earlier when he was struggling, it felt like sometimes it was because he wasn't committed enough on the back check or he, he would sort of give up on a play or there was bad body language. All of that is out the door. And I'm seeing a player who is is so engaged physically is coming back so deep defensively is not cheating for offense and yet is still delivering offense at um at a high end rate and and to me as long as he's doing that I'm happy right occasionally yeah any mistakes he's making even on occasion that's just a result of look sometimes you're under pressure and you make a mistake you can't in any of those circumstances fault his work rate and the overall results speak for themselves it's such a chicken and an egg thing for me when watching JT Miller like how much of this is because the team's had some success in the last eight games uh, versus how much of the team's success is the result of what we've seen from JT Miller uh, in this last period of time. You know what I mean? Like, you know, his body language is going to be bad when they're losing by multiple goals, right? Uh, his effort level in those moments in the game generally tends to be bad, and there just hasn't been a lot of that of late. You know, before this last eight games, they did have a few more one-sided losses. So, I, like, I do believe he's better, but the reason why I asked the question is because they're still going to have – four months where we're going to debate his trade situation. And, um, you know, and I know we're going along on this segment here, but we got to ask this question. Can they stuff that genie back in the bottle? You know what? Let's, let's talk about it when we come back. But I think the bigger picture around JT Miller needs to get discussed. We'll do that, we'll do that in a moment. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So Harm, where do you go with this situation? Now, you've got a player that's playing better. Uh, You and I don't want to get into the whole rebuild versus retool debate, right? Which is tiring the market. But, you know, there are there were two signature moves in my mind that would indicate whether this organization was ever able to pivot from retool to rebuild. One was trading Thatcher Demko. The other is trading JT Miller, right? And I think we're seeing less and less likelihood that Demko is going anywhere, which should be the case. The most efficient contract on the team, the best player or the most valuable player outside of Pedersen on this team, or maybe even more so than Pedersen when he's playing the way he has since he's returned, they should not consider on any level moving him. Like for me, the only reason to ever move him is if he wants to be moved. And and I'm not saying that he does. So I would never move Thatcher Demko. With JT Miller, what do you do? Because 
that genie is out of the bottle. Now, clearly he's still playing well and, you know, it doesn't look like he's pouting over it. But we know there were conversations, no matter what Patrick Alvin said to us on Friday about how there was only one team in the morning, and we believe that to be Carolina, we know discussions with Pittsburgh happened, right? And it's also pretty widely believed around the industry that the Canucks initiated those discussions. So what do you do now? Like, can you stuff the genie back in the bottle in this case, especially because they've got right up until... July 1st to make that decision without Miller having any say in it. And and again, like let's not make this a referendum on retool versus rebuild. Let's take it from the from the understanding that we know this team wants to retool and do this quickly. Let's start with that point. Would you trade him because now his value is getting higher, right? He's playing really well and you've clearly indicated that you're open to trading him to the player. So how does this play out? Yeah, I mean Honestly, that's a, a conversation that we ha- we're going to have months to sort of cover. So I don't want to go too deep on it, especially since we've just, uh, I, I, I don't know about you, but discussing trade possibilities, I'm, uh, I'm trying to try to sort of limit that coming out of the, the deadline. And um, Yeah, but this is the launch point, right? Like the fact is it was a real storyline at that time. Sure. It I- was real. For sure. I still think that you can, if you wanted to, and I'm not saying that this is what they should do. Uh, again, that's a conversation we ha- we can have down the line. But yeah, if they wanted to, they could put the genie back in the bottle. Why not? I mean, it's Miller doesn't have a problem with it. I sure there's been speculation do, do we, on Canucks we, Twitter, like so much speculation about Canucks Twitter. But when is there not a lot of speculation on Canucks Twitter? Right? Yeah, like, do we know that he doesn't have a problem with it? Right? Like you know, at some point, it's a it's a really tough signal for an organization to send. Right? I've said this throughout that for. It would be such a bad look for them to sign a player to that level of extension, trade him, and what that would look like in the industry amongst agents. Now, I mean, some would say that who cares? He got his money. Wherever he gets it, he's going to be happy that he's got his money. But it does send a a bit of a negative message to other people down the road. So, like, there's so many layers to this. And I'm curious to see whether or not he is upset. What What do we learn at the end of the season to find out whether he was pissed off or not. Now, again, he sat out that one game and he's tried to say the right things. I think all of us believe that whether there was some injury involved, that there was some trade protection that was involved in that decision, that it wasn't purely injury. Because even his comments after about why he didn't play in that game versus why he did play in the next game and the competitiveness around wanting to play, it was almost you know, contradictory messaging on the part of the player. So I think a lot of us believe, you know, or we at least look at skeptically why he didn't play in that one game. Um, So it certainly feels like this was real. I don't think we're going to see it manifest itself at any point the rest of the season. You know, the JT Miller you saw last night that we're lauding right now, I think is what we're going to see the rest of the season. Yeah. So, but at the end of it all, he may come back with, Okay, fine. If you want to move me, let's go. Like I, you know, and the club may revisit that discussion if they did then and they could get the right assets that they can then flip because we know they're not looking for draft picks for the sake of draft picks. But I'm curious to see if it's going to be easy to stuff that in and when we get to April and May. I'm not worried at all, to be honest, because okay. for a couple of reasons. First, he's used to being in the in the, in the rumor mill all the time, right? And, there is that. And, yeah. and at a certain point as a player, 
when that happens, you just, you become numb to it. You don't pay attention to it. You sort of think, well, I've been in the, in the, in the mill forever and nothing's ever happened. So I, I mean, what, what else is new? Right. I, I, I mean, JT Miller has tr- basically trended every day on Twitter for the last two or three years for one reason or another, <laughs> like whether it's his all nice play trade related reasons, whatever, right. He's always the topic of discussion. So I don't think, I just don't think that has a detrimental impact on on him the way it may have earlier at, la- at let's say last year's deadline when it was this when it was this constant sort of um, theme. The other point the other point is that I don't think that he was ever really worried and expected uh, a, a trade. Like I, I think through it all, his camp was really really confident that he'd be a Canuck after the trade deadline. The other the other part of it too is. There's a July one deadline on it where if it doesn't get resolved, if he doesn't get moved, it's it's case closed. Really, in terms of at least Miller not, then has control over the situation in terms of uh, in terms of oh, sure. an NMC, yeah, right? No, and, and I'm not so even talking ending, about that. I'm talking about anything up until July one. Yeah, I mean, I I don't think so. Well, it also doesn't matter because they're not going to be like at that point. You're in the off season, right? Like this this activity again is only going to kick up when you're in um, when the season has ended. So at that point as a player, not you're not playing anymore. It's not like going to necessarily yeah, be an nice distraction, right? So you're, you're back in your, wherever you spend your off season. So you're with your, you're with your family a lot more. You're able to tune it out a lot easier. I don't think that it's, it's much of a concern to be honest. It's funny because uh, you know, he was asked, a couple of days ago, the last time he spoke about, you know, now the volume can be t- turned down. And he's like, well, yeah, if you guys would turn it down. <laughs> um, and, you know, that that's all well and good, but you're asking us to ignore what actually happened. Right. And that is kind of problematic. Right. And, and I know the the national media or the insiders, w- w- you know, like to flip this back on the local media, uh, you know, and it, it's amusing because they're the ones that have fueled it because they're telling us what happened. But we're the ones here in the market that are tasked with asking the questions and they're legitimate questions when these things actually did happen. So, um, yeah, I, I want to defend my local media brethren in all of this because, uh, the, the national insiders are kind of amusing with this whole topic, right? Where it becomes hey, uh, you know, uh, Demko could get traded or Miller could get traded or whatever, but then it's the Vancouver media that's fueling it all, which is craziness because we're not breaking those stories, right? We're just reacting to them. Um, but uh, anyway, like yeah, like you said, I mean, we're, we're not going to see a lot of this. It's not going to be a talking point the rest of the year. I'm sure he's going to get asked about it at the end of the year when they do their, their wrap-up availabilities, and then we'll see where it goes from there if there's any more legs to the topic in the summer. But if the Canucks truly are trying to retool and move this along quicker, um, not sure how much it's, how much sense it makes to move on from a player who still, it would take a lot down the end here, but he could still get 80 points. And all of a sudden, you'd look at his contract a whole lot differently. And I mean, and we, you know, generally his contract is going to be judged by what happens in year four uh, as opposed to year one. But, um, you know, you certainly want to make sure early in the life of the contract, you're still getting value. And he could still deliver that by the time this whole thing is said and done. Um, let's talk a little bit about, uh, about Philip Ronick. I, I did ask, um, Rick Tockett at the end of his media availability about, you know, just kind of any more timeline because he did arrive in Vancouver on Monday. And I think they're kind of ballparking around a week to get him to the point where he can get back on the ice and and work towards playing again. I, you know, I think that's a real loose, rough number 
But uh, you know, I, I think that's kind of what they're what they're dealing in. And I'm not saying he'll play in a week, but I think he'll because there will have been a period of time off that he'll at least maybe begin practicing. And uh, whether it's non-contact jersey with the upper body injury and then kind of moving towards playing, I do think that process will begin in around a week. Um, you did a pretty good deep dive on him in the athletic in terms of what the expectations should be and and what kind of a difference he could make in this lineup. Yeah, so right off the bat, it was interesting because Hironik through his career has had a reputation of sort of being more of an offensive defenseman with defensive warts, right? And that certainly checks out when you look at some of his um, his early seasons in the NHL when he was this when he was thrust into this number one role for this this rebuilding Red Wings team with not a lot of help around him. When I watched the tapes of him this season, it was really interesting where the biggest takeaway, takeaway I had is he wasn't the player that I thought he was going to be stylistically, right? In the sense where he's a lot more well-rounded in, in two-way of a contributor than I anticipated. I was watching his defensive game and his evolution in his own end was immediately apparent, right? The standout trait that I saw was his competitive, right? competitiveness, right? Where Hornick is, he has average size, but you watch the way that he defends. When he's able to maintain a tight gap, he's really aggressive in closing it quickly and using his stick and body to hound the puck carrier, separate it, and help create a change in possession so that the team can steal the puck and, and go back the other way where he just, ha- where he just has that um, ability where if, if an attacker is handling the puck for too long, he picks the spots and is able to assertively close and, and end that play. And, and, we, and I saw examples of that against the likes of Dylan Cousins, Steven Stamkos, a lot of other sort of top six forwards as well. So it wasn't as if he was just feasting, on this against bottom six players. It, w- it was really encouraging to see. And on top of that, seeing the level of awareness that he had with his reads, where he's constantly scanning in the defensive zone, he's constantly checking over his shoulder. So that helped him on multiple occasions take away the cross seam passes, have a stick in there, whether it was off the rush, whether it was in zone off the cycle. That was really encouraging to see because defending cross-team passes is something that this team has really, really struggled with. It's also manifested itself in Heronix improved PK results, where whether it's in terms of the shots and chances or the raw goals against, you're seeing a player who's had a much better impact shorthanded, which obviously this team needs a lot of a lot of help in. Again, I'm not saying that Heronic is the second coming of Chris Tanev or anything, right? He's definitely not a perfect defensive player, and there are definitely examples where Defending the rush, for example, when a team's moving the puck really fast, that's when, where he he could get caught a, on a couple of occasions. He's not the most agile player when he's turning off his hips, but he's mobile. He's generally solid defensively, and it, it was encouraging to see. The other side of the coin was I expected maybe a high-end dynamic sort of puck mover, don't get me wrong, he has solid transportation skills. He's by far going to be the best puck mover on the right side. But it was fascinating watching him play where despite being a buttery smooth skater and despite being the sort of player where it's like if a four check gives him space, he'll love to skate it up and he's confident carrying it. He doesn't have the explosive 
first two steps to have a, a separation gear that would allow him to sort of beat four checkers when they're hounding him aggressively, right? So I looked at Hironic and he wasn't quite the sort of like pr- primary sort of puck moving workhorse on that pair. It wasn't as if every time a puck's, def- puck's dumped into the zone, the Red Wings are funneling the puck to Hironic and it's like, you, we want you to lead the breakout here, right? It was much more balanced. It was much more a case of his effectiveness and utility in transporting the puck up the ice was contingent on, okay, does he have close close passing targets around him, right? Does he have a, a a winger who's close along the wall, who's becoming available? Does he have a center who's becoming close and available? Because if that's the case, then Hironik, he can hit make those five to 10 foot passes and cleanly help exit the zone. But if not, if he's under pressure, he, he is going to flip the puck out of the zone a lot. He is going to go boards and out, which is not a knock on his game. It's just interesting to see where he wasn't quite as um as dynamic as I figured and, and so even when you had looked at um the numbers right he was fourth among Red Wings defensemen in possession exits per uh, per hour out of the defensive zone but he was behind Satter he was behind Jake Wallman he was behind Oli Mattis so um I view Heronic after watching all of those tapes and he's an all-around two-way jack-of-all-trades player who's above average at everything as opposed to I had sort of figured that he may be a high-end puck mover. He may have the great offensive tools, but he may be, say, a bit below average defensively. So that was really interesting to sort of take away from watching him a lot. So where do you play him, right? And you you talk about what you thought he was. You you may have, it sounds like you may have thought he was Quinn Hughes-like. And when I say that, I don't mean as good as Quinn Hughes, but just in terms of stylistically, because, you know, that's kind of how we see Quinn Hughes, that, you know, he's known for what he does offensively, struggles at certain points in his own end. You know, he'll he'll chafe when you ask him that until the following season, and then he'll kind of go back and suggest, yeah, maybe you were right. And he's, I think in, in the case of Hughes, he's doing everything he can at that end of the ice. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that he's, um, you know, poor in terms of process, there just are going to be some size limitations when you when you have the stature that Quinn Hughes has. But he more than makes up for it with with everything else in his game, right? Uh, when the, especially when the puck is on his stick. So, what do you do with Heronic? Do you pair him because that's been the speculation, right? Do you pair him with Hughes and try to create that that dynamic pair, or do you keep Hughes with an Ethan Bear for the rest of the season and then try to get Heronic in on a second pair with with someone else and see what that potentially looks like moving forward? Yeah, so first of all, what I mentioned in terms of st- of the stylistic difference and being more of a complete defenseman, I actually think that's better for the Canucks because it gives them more of a of a skill set on on um on the defensive side, a, a well-rounded legitimate two-way piece that they otherwise don't have enough of. So, it also makes them a a potentially better partner with Hughes if if that's how they want to play him where he has enough offensive tools to be able to excel really well and he'll give Hughes the sort of versatile offensive option that Hughes has frankly never had in his career, but also that Heronic is fine to be reliable defensively. It's not as if they're going to clash in terms of both wanting to make a lot of plays with the puck, both sort of putting themselves in aggressive offensive positions. And and one of them, one of them, at least in Heronic can be steady positionally. I think if they wanted to go that route, they can. And if we're talking about the rest of this season, where the games don't matter as much, it'd be fun to see Hughes and Hronik play together. If you wanted them to be a pair together for the next five five years, for example, 
in theory, you you could absolutely have them excel that way. I don't see any reason why why they wouldn't. But when you talk about going into next season, I look at the needs of this team on the second pair, how poor they've been in terms of their results there, and the fact that regardless of whether Hughes has played with Bear or Shen, he's still driven like a 55 to 60% share of goals, right? Like the Canucks are still handily outscoring opponents regardless of who he's playing with. So and if you're thinking about what's best for the team, are there diminishing gains if you stack Hughes and Hironic together, right? Because you may look at the first pair. If you if you play Hironic with Hughes, that pair may go from good to great. But I'd argue that the team would be better off splitting them because if you have Hironic on the second pair, there's a chance of that second pair's results to go from disastrous to competent. And I'd argue that for the team's sake, the upgrade from disastrous to competent for a second pair would be more valuable in helping this team win games. Because realistically, when you're already controlling 55 to 60% of the goals when that top pair is on the ice, you're not going to do a whole lot better than that, right? Like the best the best defense pairs in the NHL aren't controlling more than two-thirds of the goals at max, at best. Like Taves and Makar, for example, if they play together, if you consider that the best defensive pair in the NHL, they're probably just over 60% in terms of the goal share. I haven't checked the, exa- checked the exact numbers, but that's what, where I'd um, guess that they'd be. So for the team's perspective, looking at her own skill set, I do think that um, you have to, in my opinion, use this opportunity to just opportunity long-term to shore up the second pair, uh, unless there's a scenario where you're able to find another um, find another sort of legit second pair guy who you think can play that role and responsibility of anchoring a second pair, in which case then you'd look at Hughes and Hronick and go, okay, then maybe you can afford to have them play together and not worry about the second pair. Yeah, I, like I, I hate agreeing with you, but I totally do on this one. Uh, for me, it makes no sense to put them together just because, like you said, of the success that that Hughes is having whenever he's on the ice, regardless of who his partner is. So, yeah, if you if you want to fix the other two pairs, you put Hironic on one of those two pairs. There, there's no doubt in my mind that that makes the most sense. And whether that turns into Oliver Ekman Larson, which I don't think it will, I think we both kind of get the sense that the club's going to buy him out uh, this off season. Um, but, uh, you know, that probably becomes who it is if somehow OEL survives and is, is back with this team next year. But to me, in terms of the overall group and just that ability to transport the puck up ice and get more out of your second and third lines offensively, right? Because the other forward lines are so hamstrung when Quinn Hughes is not on the ice because the other defensemen are not capable of effectively and consistently transporting the puck up ice, right? So um, I think the other forwards would be better off if Hironic didn't play on that line. If we get like an official pronunciation is the h in is it out is it ah is it oh what is it come on i don't know i'm the wrong guy to ask we should be bringing on brendan bachelor for this we should we, we got to get the the perfect yeah we got to get the correct pronunciation either him or dolly law yes let's <laughs> not make it right. um we probably need as a guest at some point on this show no drance uh let's That'd be uh, so much fun yeah it would you know and i, I do want to get into quinn hughes we'll take a quick break and come back and i I want to know if we appreciate Quinn Hughes enough in this market. We'll talk about it. So, Harm, Quinn Hughes becomes the fastest NHL defenseman ever to get to 200 assists. 
And I had to do a double take when I first saw that stat because every stat we see around Quinn Hughes generally involves the first Canuck defenseman ever. And quite often, we roll our eyes and view that as an indictment of just how few really good defensemen this club has had, right? I mean, outside that, you know, 2011 window, a couple years on either side, and even necessarily those, it was a great defensive core. There just wasn't necessarily one guy that was incredible. You know, there was a top def- top 10 defenseman in the league or a top de- 10 defenseman of his era. You know, we just haven't had those guys here. So generally, there's the context of the blue line here in Vancouver over 50 plus years has been historically ordinary. So to see 200 assists, for the fastest ever, and when you look at the players on that list, that is an incredible accomplishment. And I know for me, you know, I still don't feel, and, and I'm more of an eye test guy, right, than, than you are, but I still don't feel like he's been as dynamic and as dominant as he was a couple of years ago. And again, I'm not saying he's been poor by any stretch, but just, you know, we used to see him, you know, walk the line and how he would play the game offensively, you know, in the edge work and, you know, basically a a one-man breakout unit and all of those things. And I don't see as much of that on puck uh, as I did a couple of years ago, but he's still just rolling up points. Every game you turn around and there's an assist. There's a point. It's not all power play driven. He's doing it five on five. He's driving so much offense for this team, even if it looks a little bit different. So do we appreciate locally, let alone, I mean, we we know they don't necessarily nationally, but do we almost take him for granted, especially when you consider just how good Pedersen has become? And now we've seen a three-game sample size from Demko where he's back to last year's best of Demko. You know, we and we know he's absolutely a part of this core, regardless of who else you put in. We know those three are in it, but it's almost like he's become a third, whereas maybe a year ago he was the first or the second. Like, do we appreciate him enough? That's an interesting question. I think he's flown a little bit under the radar because of the monster year Pedersen's had, because of all the other storylines surrounding this team. For starters, I'd kind of disagree with your premise. I think. In terms of what you brought up with his um, dynamic play this season and, and maybe not quite looking the same, I think that was valid for the first, like up until the end of December. I think since January, I've legitimately felt like he's been at that dynamic best self again. That's how I felt, honestly, watching him on a few shifts against uh, the Predators the other night. Not that it was the best game that he's played in a long while, but... I was watching the way that he was eluding defenders, the way that he was leveraging his edge work. I was just going, this is art on ice. Honestly, the way that he spins and turns, how he sees the ice, it legitimately felt poetic, incredible. And I and I tried to make a point of, of savoring that in, the fact that we get to watch a defenseman of this caliber. You're right, again, that I, I, I do think he's flown a little bit under the radar um, recently. You look at some of the numbers since January 1st, and he's just been absolutely dominant and since Talkit has taken over carrying a defense core that has three AHL defensemen and some struggling NHL guys is uh, as well. But to me, and I know you already said that, yeah, the national guys, we know they underappreciate him. To me, that's still such an important sort of storyline, right? Where, for example, Greg, and, and this isn't just the media side of it, right? Greg Wyshynski, for example, from ESPN, does great work there. He conducted an anonymous uh, poll of executives and players 
where they ranked sort of best players at every position. Quinn Hughes did not get a single vote, even as an honorable mention. Even as an honor- honorable mention, you know some of the guys that made the list? Dougie Hamilton was in the top 10. Jacob Slavin, wow. who is a great player, I would consider a top 15 defenseman, is on the list. But what, he has 15 points in 42 games, right? And I know he's a great shutdown guy, but hasn't even been able to effectively quarterback that Hurricanes power play, which is a weakness for them. He was in the top 10 ahead of Hughes. Uh, Zach Wierenski got votes. Devon Taves, for example, who I still love, BC kid, he got votes and was on the honorable mentions ahead of uh, Quinn Hughes, which is, to, to, in my opinion, doesn't make any sense when you consider Taves is in a situation where he's playing with Kale McCarr on the Colorado Avalanche. Nobody was talking about Devon Taves when he was playing for the New York Islanders. So you're telling me that that player is all of a sudden ahead of Quinn Hughes? I saw Hampus Lindholm get oh, votes wow. ahead of uh, uh, ahead of Quinn Hughes. And don't get me wrong, Lindholm's had a great year. He was fantastic when um, when McAvoy was out and the Bruins had some injury concerns. But again, a year ago, nobody was talking about Hampus Lindholm. Nobody. When he was on the Ducks, he was literally invisible. If, if you're telling me that he was a top 10, top 15 defenseman, that he was better than Quinn Hughes, for example, why was every team not in on the bidding for him at the deadline when the Bruins acquired him? Right. So I like maybe we've maybe we've um, maybe he's flown under the radar. The theory that I kind of have have is because his highlights in terms of assists and goals aren't as flashy as like when Pedersen goes bar down. It's like you don't have as many of those sorts of moments with Hughes. It's more of like a constant. You need to watch it on a shift by shift basis. You need to watch it in terms of like he's a one man breakout machine every time he steps on the ice to really appreciate what he is. But I still can't get over how underappreciated he is around um, around the league. Yeah, well, and that's my point, right? Is that I still believe when he was a rookie, he should have won rookie of the year. And I'm not saying he's a better player than Makar. I just think that particular year he had a more impactful season. And the numbers generally bared that out, right? But this is the problem with being on a really, really mundane, ordinary team that's nowhere near contention. Right. So he's got to wear that when he plays a little bit more of a subtle game as opposed to a Pedersen who might play a little bit more of a noticeable game. And certainly Thatcher Demko, when he's on, is required to play his game regularly for the Canucks to have a shot. Right. I mean, um, probably the single biggest reason this team is not playing meaningful games in April, not that they're a playoff team or a contender, was their goaltending. Right. And that includes Demko, right? At the first couple of months of the season before he got hurt. But when Demko is on, this team's got a shot, right? And if you combine Demko being on with an improved structure under Tockett, you know, this team would have a chance to play some meaningful games in April. And in order for a guy like Quinn Hughes to get any level of recognition uh, or get noticed, the, the team's got to do that again, just because of the style of play. To your point, that he's not going to wind up on highlights on a nightly basis. So curious to see. If that changes next year with Heronic in potentially on a second pair, uh, and maybe it takes a little bit of pressure off Quinn Hughes, and would he be better served by not being forced to have that level of ice time, right? And to, to legitimately have some help on the back end where he doesn't have to carry the entire group. How much more can we get out of the player? For sure. The other... The other part of it in terms of his perception, I think, is labels and reputations last for a while. I think everybody 
was fixated on the Canucks in the 2021 campaign, right? After the bubble, everybody's expecting that the Canucks are entering a window now to be a consistent playoff team. They're the young, exciting team on the rise. Everybody's got their eye on the Canucks and they completely faltered out of the gate, right? They had that catastrophic year in the All-Canadian division. And in that year- After a, ca- after a catastrophic offseason, one ownership should always remember when they try to accelerate a rebuild, that they might be the reason we're here based on the moves the club was forced to make that offseason. Yeah. I know, I'm digressing. Go ahead. Yeah. And and so in that sort of year where the Canucks are so disappointing, fail to live up to all the expectations locally and nationally, Hughes struggled a lot in that sophomore year defensively. He, did. he, he didn't look like himself at all, right? That year still pisses Quinn off to that day, to this day, I should say. And I think people still nationally have that reputation of him as this small defenseman who's still a bit of a defensive liability, right? They haven't been able to watch Vancouver on, on a consistent night-by-night basis and seen that he took a huge step defensively in shoring up his puck management, shoring up his ability to defend in his own end last season. The fact that he's carried that over for, for most of this year after, I'd say, struggling in the first month or so when he was clearly sort of playing through some level of injury. So... I just don't think the reputation is caught up and hopefully there is a case where next season the Canucks are able to get back in the playoff conversation. He has more help with Heronic around him. People start paying more attention to Vancouver for positive reasons and they sort of start to realize that, okay, Hughes is a lot more dependable defensively. He's not that liability that we labeled him as after his sophomore year. Let's start to give him due as a, as a top 10, or at least at the bare minimum, even if you're not going to make a case for him as a top 10 defenseman, you've got to recognize him as a top 15 defenseman. Yeah, totally fair. Totally fair. I, I, I could see that as being part of the narrative that that year was such a such a struggle for him. And yeah, he, he took it personally and he admitted it, owned it, did everything he could in the offseason. And look, there's, there's always going to be, as I said earlier, some level of size limitation. There just is, right? Uh, if he gets the wrong matchup down low, he's not going to be able to physically do certain things, but he can do things with his stick work. He can do things with his body positioning. He can, he can mitigate those challenges. And I think he's slowly working towards doing that. And, and again, part of the subtle side of the game for him that you've, you've got to notice a little bit and not just make uh, assumptions still on D before we go. One thing I wanted to uh, mention on on that note, right? People talk about the size limitation and it's absolutely valid, right? hundred percent truth to it. But I feel like, executives, players, and in terms of this league-wide perception thing, when we're evaluating number one defenseman, right? What's a number one defenseman? You expect a number one defenseman to be someone who can make an impact in every facet of the game, just be dominant in terms of when he steps on the ice, this player is going to help help create such a significant advantage for your team, right? And so people point out and take points off Hughes, right, for a size and not always being perfect defensively. But then you look at a player like Jacob Slavin, who again, I really love, He's one of the top probably three shutdown defensemen in this league in terms of pure defense. People fall in love with a player like Slavin and and a lot of times will, at least on the team side, start to rate a player like Slavin ahead of Hughes. It's, It's like, oh, the size, the reach, all this sort of stuff, absolutely valid. But then they'll ignore the fact that here's a player who can't quarterback a top power play unit, right? Is that not part of part of your responsibilities if you're a legit number one D 
to be able to do that effectively. Now, that, again, doesn't take anything away from Slavin, right? Again, I still believe that he's a top 15 defenseman, but it's like they'll take points off of Hughes for having the size limitation, and then they'll prop up Slavin as this perfect player when it's like, hold on, wait a second. Carolina's constantly struggled with its power play. One of the big reasons that they're not an elite team is they can't score at a high enough rate on the man advantage. Slavin doesn't check every box either, right? And it feels like it, that sort of thing gets ignored sometimes in the mainstream conversation. Uh, real quick before we go, actually, and I do want to get into Thatcher Demko as well a little bit more just in terms of his deployment. But first, uh, as far as um, Ethan Bear, who I think they're also looking at possibly getting back involved in the next week or so uh, in some capacity, uh, his agent, Jason Davidson, was on with Dolly while he said he had dental work, lost one tooth. They were worried a tooth broke in the roots and into his gums, Ethan was also dealing with the side effects of a concussion. He was part of the group that was skating on Friday uh, with uh, the surprise in Tucker Pullman and also uh, Travis Dermott. But also, Davidson said that he and the Canucks haven't spoken on an extension since the All-Star game. Uh, and sometimes when you tend not to agree, you tend to shut it down. It will be a one- or a three-year deal. Ethan is okay with a one-year deal. Uh, so, um, you know, contract negotiations not... Uh, necessarily progressing quickly on the Ethan Bear front, not necessarily a surprise, but um, based on what we've seen, based on what we've seen from his deployment, how important is it that they get something done? Because they're also going to want to consider Philip Ronick this offseason, right? And then players under club control. But where do you go with that situation? Because you're going to have two right side defensemen both looking for meaningful raises. And you don't have a lot of meaningful money available. Yeah, the the Canucks have to sort of make a decision. I think the biggest question you have to ask yourself is if we're able to, let's say you have Hughes and Hronik as um as your as your top four D, you're hopefully able to add another legitimate bona fide top four defenseman in the offseason. Then you wonder, could Bear be a stopgap number four, right? In an ideal in an ideal situation on a good team, to me, he's he's probably a number five, six, right? But he's able to hang but like, is he able to hang in that sort of top four role as the fourth guy if you need him to need him to sort of do that for you next season? Right. I, I spoke about, for example, we've spoken about we like the idea of Hornick potentially stabilizing a second pair. Well, when Hughes and Bear have played together this season, they've controlled shots, scoring chances, goals, all those great things at a really high level. Right. So could Bear be that sort of player that at least for next season on, let's say, a one-year deal, for example, you have him as an option to potentially do that for you? So I think that's going to be a big consideration is, is sort of figuring out whether he can be part of the answer as the fourth guy in your top four. Because look, if you're penciling him in as a bottom pair guy, he makes a decent chunk of um, a chunk of money based off the minutes that he's played. This year, he's probably going to have an arbitration case. My guess is maybe two million or higher, right? And if you're looking at a team that needs to be efficient with in different lineup spots, you probably don't want to pay a guy two plus million dollars if you're ultimately just going to use him on a bottom pair. But I think he can potentially, the way that he's shown this season, add value as the fourth guy in your top four. So I think that's the the big decision for management um, to figure out if if you want to keep Bear in the fold uh, beyond the season. Yeah, and, and also in the case of both players, 
they've had to deal with concussions at some point this season. And I'm not telling you that they're concussion prone or anything like that. But given what's happened with Pullman and Dermott and before him, Furland with a different management team, um, you got to be nervous around all of it, right? In terms of, uh, you know, giving term and what you want to do in that area. But, you know, they've invested in these players. So I, I can't imagine you'll see them wanting to walk away. But that's also something that should play in given what the organization is dealing with with that particular injury um i think that's it uh I, I wanted to talk about demco but probably not much there just a good thing that they gave him the time off yeah uh, they, they didn't force a, a fourth straight start even though they had a day off between games and what have you and haven't just tried to limit it to not playing him in back-to-back games i thought that was a good thing and boy archer Silovs, uh the arty party certainly making a case for being next year's backup isn't he for, for sure i mean even if like he doesn't even necessarily have to be penciled in as your number two for next season, right? If you look at him and go, he barely played games uh, during the COVID era. He was sort of in the similar sort of spot as Mikey DiPietro. If you believe that it's in his best best development interest long term for for him to play as much as possible, then even if he's your number three, right? It gives you more confidence in being able to look at Spencer Martin and go, Considering we don't want to spend on a backup in the offseason, right? Because backups aren't finding capable backup isn't just about spending league minimum anymore. It can even at least give you confidence in going, we can go to Martin as our backup next season. And if he falters, we know that Silovs can come up and and be the number two and we can just wave and demote Martin if need be, right? It, It gives you an important insurance policy in net to know that you have that depth in net, whether he's your number two, whether he's your number three. It's an opportunity for the Canucks to be really efficient in goal when you already consider how um, how well Demko can play when he's at his best at that $5 million cap it. So yeah, I mean, Seelov's couple of fantastic saves, moving east-west, taking away the bottom half of the net so well. It's an awesome story. I, I just love seeing um, seeing him in the locker room all smiley. The the players seem to be really rallying around him. It's, uh, it's a great story for this team down, down the stretch. Uh, Canucks against Anaheim on Wednesday. That is game four of a six-game homestand. Meanwhile, if you are not done with trade deadline talk, Pierre Lebrun recaps the trade deadline with Craig Custance and Sean Gentile on the Athletic Hockey Show USA this week. Also, Predators David Poyle joins Rob Pizzo, Gressy Granger, and Michael Russo on the Athletic Hockey Show Roundtable on Wednesday. Had a good visit last night with Barry Trotz, who's going to be taking over for the retiring Poyle at the end of the season as GM. So, um... He certainly was uh, enjoying the game last night, found it to be quite the entertaining contest for two teams that aren't currently in the playoffs. Meanwhile, you can get a new subscription to The Athletic for $2 per month for 12 months when you visit theathletic.com slash VanCast. As for us, we're back early next week. I don't think we're going to do a a live room with Drancer quite yet. We're going to wait a bit until closer to the end of the month before getting our second live room in. But boy, people sure love those, especially when it comes in and around deadline time but uh we'll be back next week harm no fights with wags in the press box please yeah i wasn't fighting i was just rallying him up i wasn't mad the the fact that the fight the fact that the fight was about something math related really made me feel old because that's not what we fought about in the press box back in the day (laughs) i mean it was just rounding it wasn't as if we were fighting on analytics right they were well yeah but that's still it's still numbers driven and math driven and like not even as it's not even as important as analytics so yeah i thought you guys were going to come to blows especially when you tried to take away the boy genius title but yeah i i uh, i I mean i just i I knew it was a bit of a soft spot soft spot a bit of um 
Uh, a sore I, spot? A sore spot, yeah. Sorry. Thank thank you. I'm not always best with uh, with the metaphors and the analogies. Um, and, and, I, and I was just like poking and prodding. I was, I was stirring the pot a little. All right. Uh, so Canucks and Anaheim on Wednesday. They play uh, Ottawa on Saturday. That's a late game. You assume it's an Eastern Canadian team on a weekend. They'd be playing at four. No, they're not. They're playing at seven. We'll be back on Monday the 13th with our next show. Thanks for logging on. Thanks for tuning in. We'll talk next week.